Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Well, welcome everybody to our Noontime Members event. My name is Mike Barsanti. I'm the Edwin Wolf II Director of the Library Company. This is part of a series of programs that we're doing that are special for our members and our shareholders, part of the privilege of membership, if you will. But you know, the library company is a learning community, as I often say, and we want experiences like this to provide you a glimpse of the kind of learning that's going on inside the library and to connect you with it. In this case, today, we have a really special event for you, event or conversation anyway where Will Fenton, our Director of Research and Public Programs, is going to interview our librarian, Jim Green, and talk about the series of blog posts that Jim has been putting up about epidemics as represented in our collections and how our collections speak to past epidemics and pandemic and disease. I want to thank you again for coming. I want to invite you, we'll come back at the very end to invite you to our next program on August 11th. But for now, before I say anything else, let me hand it over to Will and to Jim and thank them for doing this program for us. Thanks so much, Mike, and uh, welcome everybody. It's my privilege to do this, not only because I managed to wrangle Jim into doing a web event, but because it's also been a privilege uh, seeing these pieces emerge. I've served as the editor here, and it's been fascinating and illuminating for me. So I'd like to start with the ceremonial softball. Jim, what did you find in our catalog that surprised you? Well, let me actually, before I answer that question, let me just give a little bit of background about how this series of blog posts came to be. We were all shut down working from home, and I was thinking about, you know, we have a really great collection of early American and really Atlantic world popular medicine texts. I figured we have a lot of the stuff in the library about, about epidemics. And I started looking around, and I realized that we have a lot more than I thought that we got it from several different sources. We got books as they came out in the 18th and 19th centuries, which reflects the interests of our constituencies, our readers, our members then. But also, we've gotten a lot in recent times, which is a lot of that has to do with the um, sort of inspiration of our um, former board member, emeritus board member, Charles Rosenberg, who's a really great historian of medicine, which I hasten to say is not what I am. Uh, Charles has been giving us his library, those of you who read our annual reports will have been hearing about this for years, giving us um, his library in bits and pieces. Um, and it, it is probably the largest collection in private hands about popular medicine, a field that he himself defined, actually, as um, medical information for laypersons. So a lot of what we have and a lot of what I was able to use in these blogs actually are fairly recent gifts from him. For example, the John Snow map, we just got that a few months ago. So what I was trying to do was to um, to show how the library company's collections, historic collections, but also um, its present collections reflect the, these interests, um, which are of great public concern now. And it really, as it turns out, I've realized it's always been a matter of great public concern. But you know, the premise of all this is that I that the library is closed. I can't see the books, and so it was kind of a kind of an exercise in, in deprivation to be able to write about things that I can't see, although some of them I remembered, but a lot of them are books that you can get online in other forms, and to try to put together um, something about disease and history. Well, then the other thing that happened was over the course of the, of the time I was writing them, starting in March and going on into June, 
our own pandemic evolved in, in significant ways. And so maybe at the end, we can talk a little bit about how that changed, how my approach to all this changed. Anyway, so that's that's sort of where we came from. So what what it, what surprised me then was, I think I've already said, was just how much we have. And there was two books in particular that are very important to um, to their respective blogs that um, I when I thought about it, I really thought it was so amazing that we had them at all, that we got them when they came out. And those those two, the main ones, were Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year and Mary Shelley's The Last Man, both very rare books today, probably not all that easy to get in 18th century America either, or 19th century America. Um, so I was absolutely thrilled that we had those. Another book that, that I was seriously, seriously aggrieved that we don't have is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I thought, well, we just probably never got it. But digging a little bit deeper, I found out that we did have it at one point, and we don't have it anymore. And so that, that sort of really sad and pathetic loss, <laughs> we'll never be able to make it up because these books are now almost unobtainable. And I encourage all of you to sort of make a mental bookmark around Journal of the Plague Year. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more towards the very end of this hour. And I also want to call your attention to the chat feed where I dropped a link into the landing page that Tristan Don generously created that sort of collects all of these blog posts together in one handy place. Looking across your blog posts, where does the plague serve as a metaphor? And where does it appear as an actual event? And when it does appear as a metaphor, to what end? Are authors using it? That's one of the things that changed over the course of the, there are eight of these blogs, by the way, written over two or three months. I started appreciating the metaphorical nature of uh, disease. Susan Sontag has a famous book of, of uh, disease, it's illness as metaphor. Well, okay, so that's an idea that I had sort of gotten used to in the abstract, but I began to see that the things that were really um, jumping out at me were books or publications that were literary, fictional, and that that in some cases included a real actual graphic descriptions of plagues, such such as Charles Brockton Brown's Arthur Mervyn, which is about the 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. Reading that book again, I, it really became clear to me that although he describes an actual plague in enormous detail, incredible detail, in scary detail, in that setting, he's not just writing about disease. He's writing about what he saw as the kind of fractured nature of the American Republic, which in the 1790s was going through a very, very difficult period. There's an actual plague that was serving as a metaphor for bigger social ills. But then Poe's uh, Mask of the Red Death, it seems to be, it's talking about a plague, he describes it very very simply as something that you could think was a little bit like cholera, which was a problem at the time that, that was written. But in a way, he's just using the dread of disease to incite horror, a feeling of just overwhelming anxiety in the reader. And that, of course, is what Poe is famous for, is you read his stories and you can't get them out of your mind and you can't get to sleep. And that was the kind of thing that he was trying to do, I think, there. And then I hope that some of you have gotten to the, I guess it's next to last blog post on Mary Shelley's The Last Man, which is a book that the whole point of it is a, is a plague that ends the uh, actually ends the human race. It's not just it's not just a catastrophe. It's the end of human of humankind. And there's at the end of it, there's only one guy left who's writing the book that you're reading. In Shelley's writing, though, and and the more I read it into her biography, I could see that what she's doing, what she was doing in that book, is actually using this plague, which she doesn't even describe in any kind of medical terms at all. At one point she says, so it was a you know, really bad plague. If you want to know what plague's like, I'm not going to tell you. You should read Defoe. He'll tell you all you need to know about plague. 
what she was really describing was the the wreckage of her own life. And it's a sad, sad book to read, not just because it talks about the end of the human race, but because it plays out really one of the most tragic biographies of the time, a woman who's absolutely every incredibly gifted woman, every person that was close to her that she loved, except a son, everybody everybody died. A life that was starting with great promise just completely fell apart. And she's describing that, the wreckage of her own life as kind of grand, a grandiose term, I guess you could say, was the end of the human race. Said that way, it sounds kind of comical, but it's a great book. I really encourage you to read it. And if memory serves, Last Man, you call that the first post-apocalyptic science fiction novel. That, yeah, it's, that's right. And there's so many of these last man alive kinds of fictions now, and this is the original one hmm. that describes in excruciating terms how the human race comes to an end. As each of her friends dies, horrible circumstances one after another, it's suicide, it's murder, it's disease, it's everything. That's fiction, but of course, we're the library company of Philadelphia. And as we're thinking about Philadelphia as a city, and it's, it's very much lived experience of pandemics. Which infectious disease most severely affected our city? And do you see any kind of antecedent to the 1918 flu, which has gotten a lot of attention recently? The 1918 flu is, is the most obvious point of reference for all what we're going through now. And it was pretty awful, but the 1793 yellow fever epidemic was far, far worse, by, actually by a factor of 10, if you want to discount mortality. Because in the 1793 yellow fever, 4,000 people died at a time when Philadelphia had a population of about 40 or maybe a little bit more, 40,000. That's like 10% of the population. The 1918 pandemic worldwide, I, I forget, 50 million people died, something like that. It was colossal. But the in Philadelphia's terms, the population of the city was about 2 million at the time. It was because there were so many war workers there. In fact, that, that, that 1918 flu was exacerbated by the fact that we were at war and that the military troops were on the move. The disease was spread by troop movements, which is so often the case in these pandemics. With all the war workers in town, probably 2 million people and 20,000 died. That's, so that's 1%. 1% in 1918, 10% in 1793. I'm glad we're nowhere near any of those figures now. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for that sobering context. You identify instances of inoculation, as with Washington and his troops in the smallpox outbreak, quarantine, yellow fever in the lazaretto, and even contact tracing, as with Dr. Snow's map of the cholera outbreak in London. How did each of their contemporaries respond to these epidemiological advancements? Did, did Washington, for example, face any kind of anti-vaxxers, as we might today? I'm not sure that I have an answer to that, I, I, because inoculation was very controversial, even though it was getting to be more and more accepted. But for Washington, I guess in a very pragmatic way, saw it as kind of a military problem rather than a health problem. As you probably know, when you got inoculated in those days, you actually did catch a very mild case of smallpox. And in the course of being inoculated, there was some risk of your getting a full-blown case of the disease, but there was also a risk of you passing it on to somebody who hadn't been inoculated because you were contagious when you'd been inoculated. So there was a very real risk there, and it took a long time for there to be a kind of public acceptance that the reward was much greater than the risk. Franklin, who failed to vaccinate his little boy, Frankie, when he was just six years old, learned that lesson the hard way. He realized, and it was one of the great regrets of his life, that the risk of inoculation was so much less than 
than the risk of catching the disease in, in what he calls the normal way. Well, anyway, so Washington saw this as a military problem. If troops were inoculated when they enlisted or when they came into the front of the war, then they would get sick just at the point for a week or so. It usually took a week to recover from the inoculation. They'd get sick just at the point where they were most needed and also in possibly infect other, other troops. So, and by the way, the smallpox was affecting the American troops much worse, much more, much more gravely than the British. Don't ask me why. But so it was a definite, it was a strategic, a huge gap in his defenses. And also, if he inoculated everybody all at once, so that the risk of uninoculated people catching it from inoculated soldiers, then the entire army would be out of commission for a week or 10 days. And if the British ever found out about it, they would attack then and the world would be a different place. So what he decided to do was to have, to in effect, push it back a little bit onto the civilian population and require everybody who enlisted to be inoculated before they showed up and put on their uniform. So they would be quarantined for at least a week or more back home before they then reported for duty. And that way, that removes the threat of smallpox from, from the army and also uh, removed any sort of strategic weakness that, that inoculation might have caused. And it was keeping that secret, not only to, to protect morale in the, the patriot population, but also to keep the British from finding out this is what was going on was a really important part of this campaign. And it's a, a little story about the Revolutionary War that I never heard before and I found to be very interesting. So in the Lazaretto, it's a very interesting, very interesting case study in what we're finding now about this, whatever, this, this competition, this struggle between the need to protect and the need to have an economy that's open to commerce. The Lazaretto was a quarantine station on the Delaware River, I hope you all know. And every ship that was coming, especially during the, the warm weather months that came into this, the city, had to stop there and be inspected. And if they found any trace of disease, then the entire ship and its cargo ship, the cargo as well, had to be quarantined for a week or two. This was the passengers on the ships, or, or immigrants too. I mean, when the ships were coming from abroad, immigrants and, and passengers of all kinds were really, really unhappy about this. And so they, they built this quarantine station far from the city, but also put a very high wall and a very strong gate on it so that the people who were quarantining there couldn't escape. They were really, really imprisoned. So yeah, they complained, but their complaints were nothing compared to the ship owners. They, they just hated it, and they made it very, very public, their objections to it. And one of their strategies was to question the science. They said, no, quarantine doesn't do any good. They're, the doctors completely misunderstand how disease is, is spread. And they actually eventually won the argument in a sense because the Lazaretto at the end of the 19th century was sort of decommissioned and became a sort of a regular disease hospital and this quarantine practice became less common. But in the time when it counted from the 18, early 1800s through well past the middle of the century, it was actually incredibly successful. And the cure rates in Lazaretto were very high and the incidence of contagious disease in Philadelphia was much abated. So History shows us that, that in this case, the doctors were right and the ship owners were wrong. Do I remember correctly that the Lazaretto is uh, identified as the pest house on yeah, 18th century maps of Philadelphia? Yeah, that's an old, old term that goes back to the Middle Ages, actually. Hmm. Dr. John Snow is my favorite character in all of these, in all of these stories because Maybe I should just tell the story a little bit. He, during an 1852, I think it was 1852 outbreak of cholera in London, began to notice at that time that the cholera was transmitted by putrid air. 
it was vapors and it was noxious fumes that transmitted the disease. And he began to get suspicious about water as a source of contagion. And he noticed a special concentration of cases around a pump in Soho in London, in Broad Street, it was called the Broad Street Pump, which was a very popular neighborhood amenity. A lot of people thought that the water from the Broad Street pump tasted better than all the other pumps in the neighborhood. And so people would came from really quite far away to draw water from this pump. And he began to notice that the people who used the pump died. And he also noticed, and this is another great thing about Snow's story, is that, that this was actually one of the first double-blind medical experiments. We're hearing a lot about that sort of thing now. We talk about vaccine, and I do believe that this was a kind of double-blind test. Because what he found was that the people who drank from the pump died and the people who didn't drink from the pump didn't. And he found that out just by asking them, you know, what's your favorite pump? And he found that there was a big cluster of cases around close to the pump, but also a wider spread area. And those people in that wider spread area were the ones who went out of their way to drink from what turned out to be the poison pump. So he, he convinced the city fathers to do a very simple thing with a screwdriver to detach the handle from the pump. And everybody protested, but the outbreak stopped. And then he published his findings about this with a map showing the, a pioneering piece of data visualization, among all the other wonderful things that he did, showed a map that showed the concentration of cases around the pump and the diminishing mortality and the connection of people who used the pump and then the people who didn't use the pump and may have lived right next to it and didn't get sick. So anyway, it was a brilliant piece of, of work. And he's a kind of you know, saint in the history of public health to this day. Map is iconic, I guess you could say. I mean, sort of the moral of the story is with Snow is that with all three of these cases, this, you know, the received medical wisdom was one of the biggest hurdles that had to be overcome. Benjamin Rush thought that African-Americans were immune to yellow fever because that's what the medical books said when he started seeing patterns of who was dying and who was not in Philadelphia and when so many of the black community were volunteered, who volunteered or volunteered themselves as nurses, and they were dying too. And so he changed his mind. In the case of the smallpox, in Franklin's youth, when smallpox in the 1720s became a big issue in Boston, it was the physicians who were opposed to inoculation because that's what all the books, all the books said, you know, that it was crazy to try to infect somebody on purpose with a disease. It was the ministers, led by Cotton Mather, who were the ones that pressed ahead with the, with the experiments and found out. That, so there's a kind of pattern here about physicians themselves are very often there. In the Snow case of cholera, it took a long time for the physicians to come around to, to Snow's view of this because everything told them it was air and not water that transmitted the cholera. Yeah, and notably, you introduced me to this incredible pamphlet that we have from Richard Allen and Absalon Jones. It was published as a rebuttal to Matthew Carey's account of the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, where they are correcting the falsehood that the Black community, the Black nurses in particular, were somehow more immune to yellow fever than everyone else in the city. Yes, and they corrected a lot of other falsehoods as well, but that, that medical one was an important one. Yeah, so... In your post on pandemic panic, which is one of my favorite ones, you quote Charles Rosenberg, who you mentioned earlier in this, who calls an infectious disease, quote, a stress test for the healthcare system. And it does seem that hearsay, disinformation, and distrust of medical expertise posed very real challenges during, yes, the yellow fever epidemic, but also in the Liverpool riots, which you read about. Is there anything that you hope that readers will take from your series to um, inoculate themselves against rumor, disinformation, and fear? 
I think that's a great question. But yeah, I think that the takeaway for me anyway is not believe the science because in fact, science is complicated and is very much, um, and this is something that Charles Rosenberg also has been telling us for a long time, that medicine is a social construct. It's not pure science. It's a very complicated mix of social practices and, well, science. So no, it's not always believe the scientists. But, you know, I come, back, I come back to my guy, John Snow, who I think he's the guy that has the right approach, I think, which is, which is to be cool and to, and to look closely. There's a very Franklinian thing he was doing, actually, to observe and to believe, you know, the evidence of his own experimental process and act on it. And so, yeah, trust empirical evidence and realize that, you know, we're, we're all in a, in a learning curve with this. That nobody knows the answer. That's the people who look with the clearest eyes for the answers that are going to get us out of it. And then also, I recall to you that in the Decameron, which is where the series starts with Boccaccio's gilded youth going up to the hills above Florence and telling stories to each other, there's an arc to, to those stories. And as the 10 days they spend up there is coming to an end, the stories begin to get darker and darker and darker. And then all the famous ones, the ones that, that are sort of ribald, are towards the beginning. And then the last story in the series is the story of Patient Griselda, which is about this woman who's, it's actually in Shakespeare's Winter's Tale, it's a, a lot of the same kind of plot. A husband who tests his wife by basically destroying her and everything that she loves. And then when she doesn't complain, and she's totally stoic and unable to be moved even to tears by all the horrible things he's doing to her. He says, okay, it was just a test. Now here's everything back. Here are your children back. Here's all your riches and your clothing and, and my love. And she doesn't say very much one way or the other about that. And I think we all have to learn to be kind of stoic about these things because sometimes it does seem like there's an abusive person there who's just torturing us and there's nothing we can do about it. Thank you for mentioning Decameron because yes, of course, that's your first post, but also, and we didn't plan this, the Times just put out a special project called yeah. Decameron Project, yeah. which is a really rich analysis of the Decameron, but also a series of stories from people living through this pandemic today. And they're really marvelous. I'd like to bring you over to my favorite area, which is list studies. You consider everything from vernacular fiction, as in the case of Boccaccio, to sort of novelistic journals, as you did with Defoe. And I'm wondering, does the breakdown in social order that accompanies a pandemic, does that in any way catalyze generic experimentation? And the answer is yes. I'd just like to underscore that the extent to which, as, the, as I went through these blogs, and especially as we got into June and began to see real serious breakdown of the social order, in protests and police violence. I began to think that what Charles Rosenberg said about an epidemic of being a stress test was not just of the medical system, faults were being revealed by the stress of the epidemic, but the whole social order. So yeah, in fact, the last, my last blog post was in pandemic panic, was a response to all that and to my feeling that it was really just talking about disease in this kind of medical way that I've been doing in, in some of the earlier blog posts was just not, was not doing the job. The issues that is surfacing of racism and police violence were far, far more pressing and more deserving of being addressed than, than the purely medical aspects that I was talking about. So anyway, 
I think that absolutely that disease, but also, and this is a theme that kept coming out in the books I was looking at, but also climate disasters, which act a lot like epidemics, have the same kind of effect, not only stressing the social order, but also inciting writers to invent new genres. So in 1816, which was the year of the climate disaster was caused by a, the eruption of Mount Tambora and a giant cloud of ash that went over Europe and led to a summer of freezing rain and no sunshine, and which led to famine and hundreds of thousands of people died. That was the summer when not only did Mary Shelley write Frankenstein, because the weather outside was too bad where they were staying in Switzerland, and so they stayed inside and wrote books. That was when Shelley wrote Frankenstein. It was also when their friend Dr. Polidori wrote The Vampire, which is the book that created another, another sort of horror genre. And also in The Last Man, Mary Shelley is actually... I believe, harking back to 1816. It was written over a decade later, but describing concatenation of disease and climate disasters that helped bring the human race to an end. So another example of this that I, I came across was Pushkin in 1831 was at home in his country house in Boldino when a cholera epidemic broke out in St. Petersburg, and he was heading into town and was stopped by a roadblock, this thing they call the French term cordon sanitaire. It was a roadblock that kept people from traveling to or from where the epidemic was. Sounds familiar. So he had to spend a fall in Boldino, where it was the most productive three months or four months of his career, of his writing career of his life. And that's where he finished Eugene Onegin, which I don't know if this is generic innovation or not, but Eugene Onegin not only is a kind of national book for foundational text for Russian literature, but it was also, it was a novel in verse. Yeah, and Defoe's journal, The Plague Year, was definitely a proto-novel kind of thing. And so, yes, I think you're making a good point, Will. Thank you, Jim. And I, I mean, I, I'm certainly curious, despite all of the other stresses and losses that we're going through right now, if we do see it, the emergence of some new literary forms from the current pandemic that we're living through, I'm sort of just raising my own antennae for that. Certainly experimentation with Zoom, which we're living through right now, but you look at um, how you know major outlets like SNL have already used Zoom to fill these gaps that they're otherwise facing and produce some really interesting approaches to comedy. So that's one example, but I'm interested in what happens textually. So that's something that I hope that other folks might have opinions about in the Q&A. I do want to circle back to something that you started to raise that you were avoiding my question in the beginning, which was the fact that pandemics do, in fact, reveal or exacerbate fissures that are already in society. And your final blog post is a departure. Why did you pivot? And I think you've started to gesture towards this, but I'm asking you to make the implicit explicit. Why did you pivot from epidemics to riot? Because it was happening and because my inspiration here was a book that I know you know, I would like to recommend it to everybody who's listening. Sam Otter, who's an American literature professor at Berkeley, wrote a brilliant book called Philadelphia Stories about where his thesis is that Philadelphia is the place where America first began to envision what a multiracial society would look like and how it would work, both in literature but also in real life. And so he talks about um, Charles Brockton Brown, the Quaker City, but also The Killers, which is a book that I cite books about the riots that were happening in Philadelphia in the 1830s and 40s. But also, he just talks about the riots. And, you know, this is, we have a great collection of books about uh, graphics and literature and nonfiction about what must have been 
really one of the most painful decades in the nation's history, but especially in Philadelphia's history, roughly 1838 to 48, when there were constant riots. But what were these riots? These were not riots of protest, really, although some of them have a kind of protest strain to them in the beginning. But mainly, they're just anti-Black riots. They are riots of nativists, of police, of soldiers going into Black neighborhoods and shooting people and burning houses and torching churches. And this went on almost every year for over a decade. It's a part of our history that I think really needs to be explored, and it seems really very relevant now that some sense these problems of, of endemic or epidemic or pandemic racism are still with us and in some ways worse than ever. So it seemed to me an urgent thing. And so that's why I broke out of the disease mold to talk about this. And then at your instance, with your encouragement, I managed to find a couple of really very faint links between epidemics and riots. The evidence is just not there. But if you want to think of racism as an, an epidemic or an endemic disease, then yeah, there's your connection. And that was specifically with the Garys and their friends, right? Yes, yes. The great novel, The Garys and Their Friends, where there's a very, very small plot point that disease hinges on. But mostly it's about this kind of anti-Black rioting, which really kind of started becoming, not just in Philadelphia, but all over the country, started to become a kind of pattern. A lot of it began in Philadelphia with the so-called reform of the state constitution in 1838, where as a reform measure, African-Americans who had voting rights, if they owned property, same terms as, as white people, took the vote away from African-Americans on racial grounds. That really kind of, you know, the beginning of this, what went on up to the Civil War and after in Reconstruction with Jim Crow laws and the Ku Klux Klan and this kind of thing. It's where a lot of that really began. So when Sam Otter says that Philadelphia was a place where all these sort of the laboratory where all these ideas about how a multiracial urban society would look like, and it didn't work out very well. I promised earlier that we were going to tunnel in a little bit on Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. And to do that, I'd like to sort of begin to open this up. And I think a nice way to do that would be to bring in someone from our community uh, who's been terrific participant at numerous firesides and who has spent some time thinking a good deal about Defoe. That's Dr. Dee Andrews. And I'm going to ask Dee to unmute herself and take her video off and join us to tell you a little bit about Dee. She is Professor Emerita at CSU East Bay, where she teaches early American history, historical research methods, and U.S. history surveys. She's the author of the award-winning book, The Methodists and Revolutionary America at a Princeton University Press. And she's currently working on not one, but two book projects on abolition. Dr. Andrews was notably an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Library Company in 1999. Thank you so much for joining us, Dee. My pleasure, Will. My pleasure. But like Jim, I'm not a historian of medicine by any stretch of the imagination. I know much less about this than Jim himself does. I'm also not a Defoe specialist, so I'm your token reader here. I happen to have read Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, and I have a little group of friends who do these things, and I drew up a list of things that just jumped off the page that reminded me of our own times. I came up with a list of about 30 things, things and trends and episodes that I shared with some friends, and I casually sent it to Jim, and he asked me if I would join in for a brief moment. And also, I'm reflecting also, as you were speaking, about the impact on genres of that journal, because Defoe, according to his biographer, Richard West, and a few other sources, he began his novel career 
Robinson Crusoe, etc., quite Roxana, Mo Flanders, quite late in his years. And it was over the same time I'm now noticing that he was researching Journal of the Plague Year. So mm-hmm. I think there's a connection there. Of course, Defoe is one of the very first, maybe the first novelist in the English language, and somebody can correct me on that. His life is extraordinary, and he's like a fictional character himself. In a way, it's as if he's channeling his life into Robinson Crusoe, etc. It's so extraordinary. So there's a lot of mixing of biography and art, and also journalism. He was a very great journalist. It's a very readable book, Journal of the Plague Year. It gets kind of repetitious, gets a little bogged down. He just is pouring forth everything he knows. It's presented as if it's written by his uncle, Henry Foe, who was alive at the time of the plague with Sadler in in London, I'm sure a quite wealthy man. And Defoe was just a young kid at the time of the epidemic. So it's written as if Henry wrote it. But obviously, Defoe did a huge amount of research on this, and it's packed full of information. Among the things you'll notice is, of course, there's a lockdown. It's enforced by an activist municipal, the Lord Mayor of London, an activist municipal government. There are kind of tracers called examiners who are trying to find out where the disease is. Now, this is mostly to facilitate lockdown, but there is a little bit track and trace going on. The Mm -hmm. people who are most vulnerable are the nurses and attenders and doctors, and they're heroes for staying in town instead of fleeing. The huge numbers of people thrown out of work, especially small business owners who today, tradesmen, dependent on the city for their provisions, as they say. Families, of course, face endless tragedies of deaths. I mean, talk about percentages. The estimate is that 25% of London's 100,000 people, 25% of the city's population died. This is the bubonic plague, the 25%. Now, of course, the wealthy flee town. They got to their Huntington Long Island estates. <laughs> and, the, uh, and women still have to give birth. And some of them do so alone. I know we don't face that today, but I know women in hospitals today are sometimes separated from their babies because they've been tested positive. It just goes on and on and on. I mean, it, it was really striking. Um, in fact, I thought I'd just read the opening paragraph just to give you a sense of Defoe's art as a writer, his biographer, Wes, says he's a, uh, he's a very common writer. He's not Latinate, in other words. He doesn't use belletra. He's a, he's a journalist, and he writes like that. So the very opening passages are, it was about the beginning of September 1664 that I, among the rest of my neighbors, heard in ordinary discourse that the plague had returned again in Holland, for it had been very violent there, and particularly at Amsterdam and Rotterdam in the year 1663, whither they say it was brought, some said from Italy, others from the Levant, among some goods which were brought home by their Turkey fleet, others said it was brought from Candia. It mattered not from whence it came, but all agreed it was come into Holland again. I think that's, you know, our point of view today, it doesn't matter where this is coming from, it's here. You know, this is very striking start to this this journal, I think, is it is here, is essentially the message. He goes on to talk about how they don't have national newspapers in 1665. So the word isn't traveling the way it would today. And of course, that's very different from our own time. But then he says, the government had a true account of it and several councils were held about ways to prevent its coming over from Holland. But all was kept very private, which of course was also the case early in January. 
Hence it was that this rumor died and get off again, people began to forget it as a thing we were very little concerned in and that we hoped was not true till the latter end of November and beginning of December, when two men said to be Frenchmen died of the plague in Longacre. Of course, that's also the original, the initial West Coast cases were coming. And the parish clerk where they died, examined the bodies, found that they had signs of the plague, and he returned the account to the parish hall. It was printed in the weekly bill of mortality in the usual manner, thus, plague two, parishes infected, one. And that's the beginning of this book. It's really, I think, a stunning beginning and, and something, you know, that is very resonant for us now. And it made me wonder, just to reflect on this, it made me wonder about three things. One was, where did they get their food from? And there, there's a bit about this in the book. I mean, butchers and bakers, just like our supermarkets, were required to stay open. People had uh, livestock that they kept, the wealthier people that, of course, could be butchered for food. The London government required that the markets be open for bread, butter, and cheese, I believe it was. I think that's in his other book, but I don't remember that from the plague here. But it, it was curious to me, just he, he says that he, the narrator, had enough food on store, everything was fine that way. And I just, I was curious if anybody knows, how would you have a store of food in 1665 when you often depended so much on fresh food? I know how people would do that today, but I don't know how they would do it then. That was one thing. I should add another uh, big resonance that I wrapped up my little list for my friends was, so there's the city government, the Lord Mayor and the city council, which are running everything. And there's a pest house where people are taken who are very sick and often that's the better place to be. But the royal court leaves town. <laughs> they skip town, do nothing. They go to Oxford, they're gone. <laughs> I was very struck by that. <laughs> Charles's court was out of there. <laughs> but in any case, so the food thing was one thing, the court is aside. The other thing that struck me was that it seems so similar. I mean, obviously, all these resonances. Is it we haven't changed all that much? You know, did, did, are the things the same as they've always been? Or is this the beginning of our modern era? Are we looking at the beginning of modern life? That was one thing. The second thing was, you know, nobody seems to question their faith here. And I read a great novel by Geraldine Brooks called Year of Wonders, which is about the plague in, a, in an English village. And the whole theme of the book is about loss of faith or changing faith. That's another thing. This is just a modern reaction we have now is what does this all mean in the natural world? And we've moved into a time when questions of faith are not so strongly uh, resonant for so much of our culture that, of course, obviously huge for other parts of our culture. But Defoe is a man of thought. He's a man of investigation. He's a man of curiosity. But he ends the Journal of a Plague Year with a little ditty, a little poem just about, you know, I'm alive and I'm thankful. And nobody else seems to remember to be thankful without the least questioning of his faith. And that, that struck me as a little odd in a way for someone in the 1720s when he wrote the book. Dee, thank you so much for uh, bringing us back to a text. I feel like that's really helpful grounding. Jim, did uh, you have any musings in response to the wonderful comments that Dee just made? Well, yes. I think that Defoe was, was a brilliant novelist because he was such, again, I guess I could say sort of Franklinian observer of, of human life. Have we really not changed that much? Yes, we've changed in a million different ways. But, you know, disease is not necessarily 
a part of history. A disease is something that stands outside of history and it does what it does and seems to be doing the same thing over and over again. Thank you, Jim. All right, so we have a couple of questions that I'm hoping we can race through. Sorry, Gene, I'm gonna truncate your question and just sort of start at the very end. Gene Wolfe notes that the Lazaretto wasn't actually constructed until 1799. And she asked, would the library company have information on the early pest house prior to the Lazaretto? We have the map, uh, the skull and heap map that, sh that identifies the location of the pest house. There are a very few documents about what was going on there. There was a sort of Save the Lazaretto group that some people that we all know, Ken Finkel, for example, was very active in that. And they, they did find a fair amount of documentation, more in, in you know, city archives than in, in our collection. It did take a few years before the, it was after the 1798 epidemic that they finally acted and started to build it. It was really after 1800 when it started to function. And the old pest house, I guess, I guess it just probably fell into ruin, but it continued to be used all the time as the Lazaretto was under construction. William Jordan asks, weren't the riots of 1840 also anti-Irish and anti-Catholic? Yeah, there was. So one of, the big, one of the biggest, one of the most famous riots, the Bible riots, that was the only one of that series that was not an anti-Black riot, and it was an anti-Irish riot. And uh, as I said in the blog post, I called out, uh, help me, the old historian who wrote How the Irish Became White. Oh my goodness, it is escaping me, but it is in the blog post. I distinctly remember that. The Irish immigrants who were arriving in, in the United States in the 1840s, before, during, after the potato famine, were despised by the native-born Protestants, for the most part, who, in a sense, they were kind of reviving the old antagonisms with Catholic immigrants coming to Albania, a place where there's a very large Protestant Scots-Irish population, reviving all the old world conflicts, uh, keeping them alive. But in a way, that was a racial riot, well, because it was the racialization of the Irish as not white, and also the expression of among the uh, working class Protestant Scots-Irish of wanting to say, yes, we're really, you know, we're the real white people. That may not have made much sense, but something to keep in mind that during 1838 rewriting of the state constitution, the sort of almost transactional nature of that is really quite striking, that the, the franchise was extended very, very liberally to white men. So the property qualifications for being able to vote were largely removed. But the quid for that quo was that black people lost the right to vote. The Bible riots were not anti-black riots but there was a kind of racialization of the Irish that was involved in them. And, and so in that way, they really fit into the pattern. And that constitutional amendment followed almost immediately after the burning of Pennsylvania Hall, right? Right. Yeah, there were the two events that were going on at the same time. All right, well, I need to turn this back to Dr. Michael Barsanti, Edwin Wolfe II director, who's gonna close us out and make sure that we don't forget anything huge. Jim, thank you so much for this. This was really educational for me. Thank you, well, thank you all for being with us. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Jim and Dee, all of you. That was a fantastic conversation. I had been thinking a lot about this convergence of epidemics and social unrest. Um, we're all thinking a lot about it because we're living through it. And then to tie in sort of literary innovation into that period. I mean, I'm sure people have written about 20th century literary innovation in that context relating to influenza as well. Like you can it becomes a really interesting focal point. So thank you for giving a lot more context and background to thinking of all of that. And thank you all, all of our attendees for coming and for your questions. 
Again, thank you all for coming. Have a great afternoon. Stay healthy, everyone. 